get your Bible out and let's open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 13. This is where we are today, 1 Samuel 13. Uh, we are kind of working our way through looking at the prophet Samuel and, and lessons about how to get back on track uh, with God. 1 Samuel 13, title of the message today is The Ultimate Failure. You know, we don't really like to talk about failure uh, very much, right? Nobody wants to really talk about it. No, no one certainly wants to be a failure or to fail in any situation. We always like everything up and to the right. We always like everything being just as we thought it was going to be. But that simply isn't the case, right? I mean, we, we fail in life. We fail oftentimes with multiple situations. Sometimes they're small failures. Sometimes they're big failures. But we all go through seasons and experiences of failure. In fact, I really believe if you're not failing, then you're not stretching. You know, if you're not failing at something, you're not, you're not really pushing yourself to be all that you could be. So failure is a part of growing and a part of learning. And in fact, failure is a, is a tremendous teacher. Uh, you can learn from your own failure. I know for myself, boy, I, I hit the wall once. I go, oh, wow, I don't want to do that again. All right, so I learn from that and hopefully are better as a result of it. You know, Henry Ford failed miserably at his first attempt at auto manufacturing, so much so that the board had to dissolve the company because it was losing so much money. But of course, he adapted, he adjusted, and he went on to revolutionize that industry. And he said, failure is simply the opportunity to begin again, this time more intelligently. <laughs> I think that's right. You know, we, we fail, we start over, but this time we know more than we did the first time. And we know what not to do. And, and failure, one of the things about failure is you can learn from your own failure, but you can also learn from other people's failures. That's less painful, right? To go, okay, I see what they did. I definitely don't want to do that. And the Bible is filled with people like that, where they, they failed and it's preserved so that we can learn from them so that we don't follow in the same pattern or that we fall into the same traps or problems that they did. And what we're going to do today is look at a man who had tremendous promise tremendous uh, potential and yet failed and we're going to learn from him how not to experience the ultimate failure in life and we're going to learn what that is so that's in first samuel chapter 13 and so before we jump into the story uh, again we're kind of in a storyline here so if you missed last week or two weeks before I'd encourage you to go back because all this is kind of a continuous story so we're kind of jumping in the middle here but let me kind of catch you up to speed the people of Israel have decided that they want a king uh, they don't no longer want to be a theocracy where God is leading them and raising up what he called judges or military leaders to protect them now they want a king like all the other nations have a king so they're moving from a theocracy to a monarchy and Samuel is in the midst of this transition. And so God chooses a king for them. And he chose a man named Saul. And Saul had all the kingly qualities that you would expect, right? He was literally taller than everybody else, good looking, strong, intelligent. He had all the things that you would look at and say, that guy looks like a king, all right? And so Saul fit the bill. He fit the description. And so Samuel uh, appoints Saul as king and then not too long after that there's an uprising of the Amorites and so Saul leads a whole uh, battalion an army of Israelites against them and has a tremendous victory he puts them down 
And so they all come back to Gilgal, man, and they anoint phys- uh, permanently Saul as their king. And it is a wonderful thing. I mean, Saul is riding high. The poles are up, all right? His popularity rating is through the roof. He is trending on social media. Everything is great. I mean, the, the press loves him. Everybody loves him. We got a king. Uh, we've kicked some tail. Uh, everything's great. We're on the upswing. We're finally going to be who we're supposed to be. We got us a king. And so everything is wonderful. And that's where we pick up in chapter 13. <laughs> and if you know anything about it, it's like it's not going to stay there. All right. But uh, here we go. Chapter 13, verse 1. This is the word of God. Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 42 years over Israel and he chose 3,000 men from Israel for himself. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and in Bethel's, in Bethel's hill country and 1,000 were with Jonathan, which was his son, in Gibeah of Benjamin. And he sent the rest of the troops away, each to his own tent. Now stop right there. They've just come off this great victory. And so Saul is now going to collect a standing army. He sends the rest of the guys home. Thank you guys for fighting. You're free to go back home. I'm going to retain 3,000 men, two with Saul, 1,000 with uh, Jonathan as a standing army. Uh, And so continue reading verse 3 and Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison that was at Geba and the Philistines heard about it so Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land saying let the Hebrews hear and all of Israel heard the news Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison and Israel is now repulsive uh, to the Philistines Uh, Then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. All right, so they just come off this great victory, right? They beat the Amorites. They had this great victory. And so they're kind of following the momentum, right? The momentum is with them. They've had this great victory. Now they've got a standing army. And so Jonathan feels like, hey, if there's ever a time to attack the Philistines, which by the way, let me remind you, the Philistines had their thumb on the Israelites this whole time. All right, they've been, they've been oppressing, they've been overshadowing them. They're the ones that are ruling the region. And they're like, hey, if we're ever going to throw the shackles off these guys, now's the time to do it. We got the wind in our back. We got us a king. We're winning. God is with us. Let's take them out. And so Jonathan goes and he attacks a battalion uh, right there at Geba, which Geba, by the way, was deep in Israelite territory. So that just shows the extent of the Philistine presence with them. And so, uh, and so he attacks them and he wins. He defeats this small garrison and there's a victory. And so Saul blows the ram's horn and everybody starts to get the word that, hey, the battle's on now. Now we're taking on the big guy, all right? We won the small guy. Now we're going to take on the big guy. And Saul has won this victory. Actually, it was Jonathan, right? But Saul takes credit for it. And, and really what you're going to find here starting at this spot and moving forward that Saul begins to think more and more and more of himself, right? He's like, man, I just, I just my, first, my first game I had a decisive victory. My first battle I had a decisive victory. And now we're taking on this garrison and we beat them. And look what I've done. And it, you can almost see over the next couple of chapters Saul's ego just inflating, right? I'm the king. I can't do anything wrong. Uh, No one can defeat me. This is that kind of idea. In fact, when you get to chapter 15, he actually builds a monument for himself. Guys, just try that this afternoon at home, all right? 
Honey, I'm just going to build a monument to myself. Put it out in the yard. Don't think that would go over very well. You know, success can be very dangerous. Think about that. Success can be very dangerous. You start to believe that it's all about your leadership and your ability and your acumen and your talent and not about God's blessing. The Apostle Paul dealt with some people like this in Corinth. They were kind of, they thought a lot about themselves. They thought they should be in leadership positions and, and they were better than the others. There's a lot of comparison between them. And he had a pretty stinging rebuke in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He said this, what are you so puffed up about? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And all you have, if all you have is from God, why act as though you're so great as though you have accomplished something on your own? Wow. I mean, it's easy to say, well, I built this company because I'm a great leader or I'm a great visionary or, you know, this church is going this way because it's all about me and my ability or, uh, you know, I, I'm a great athlete because of my great talent or whatever, whatever the situation is. And we begin to think it was all about us when really all that we have comes from God anyway, right? Everything we have comes from God. Paul was like, what do you have that you haven't received? Uh, nothing. You received everything. And if you received everything from God, then why are you puffed up as if it's about you? It's not about you. And Saul was really beginning to learn this. Uh, his success, his initial success was really setting himself up for a colossal failure. And if we're not careful, the same can happen in our own life. So Saul's ego is inflating, and at the same time, his circumstances are deteriorating. Look at verse 5. The Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel. Uh, check this out. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as a sand on the seashore. That would be a lot. And they went up and encamped at Michmash, east of Beth Aven. So these uh, Philistines, remember, they're the superpower. Yeah, they lost a little garrison, but they're not going to take that loss uh, lying down. They're going to show some force. And so they marshal, you know, thousand, right? 3,000 uh, chariots, 6,000 horsemen, as many as you can number of troops. And they're going to show these little Israelites who's really boss. Right? Just because you won this little thing, don't get any ideas. We are still in charge. And so there's this massive show of force. And so what do the Israelites do? Well, they are, they are pretty terrified. Uh, check this out. Verse 6, the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble. No, duh. Because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in holes and cisterns. And some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul, however, was still in Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. So what did they do? Uh, they scattered, all right? I mean, literally, like, like cockroaches when you turn on the light. I mean, they were scattering. They were in holes and caves, and some went across the Jordan into another region. They were just getting out of Dodge because they had poked the bear, and now it was coming down on them, and they are scattering. So here is Saul now. He's with Gilgal. Remember, he just had the big victory. He's thinking all about himself, and now his troops are falling apart. And it just seems to get 
go from bad to worse. And I won't read it for you. You can read it on your own. But in verse 15, we find that his troops go, Saul's troops turn from 2,000 to 600. I mean, they're just, they're just leaving him by the droves. In verse 17, the Philistines start to marshal these strategic attacks, these surgical strikes to literally ferret out these Israelites out of their holes, out of their caves, man-to-man, door-to-door kind of combat. And then in verse 19, you discover that the, the Israelites didn't even have weapons. All they had were farming equipment. There was no blacksmith, and so they couldn't create weapons. There were only two swords in the whole army. Saul had one and his son Jonathan had one. Everybody else had pitchforks and, and hammers and, and plows and things like this. I mean, that's all they had to fight with. So they were not only outmanned, but they were outgunned in every possible way. And Saul is in big trouble. Man, he thought he was all that. And very quickly, the momentum has shifted. The wind has shifted. And now he's in a very dangerous and serious situation. So what does he do? This is really, this is Saul's big test. I really believe if you could, if you could mark Saul's uh, leadership as king, there are moments in time when what you do in that moment as a leader pivots you one direction or the other. And this is Paul's, uh, Saul's pivot moment. All right, if he acts one way, it's going to go well for him. If he acts another way, it's not going to go well for him. And he is in teetering on this very defining moment in his leadership and as a person. How do you respond when things don't go well? How do you deal with it when last quarter you lost more money than you did this quarter? Or things are trending downward and it looks like things aren't going to turn back? How do you handle it when your dreams and your hopes that you had don't seem to, to come to fruition? How do you handle it when in, you're in a relationship and it's falling apart? How do you handle these things? Do you get angry? Do you get angry with God? Or do you press in and take control? How do you respond? Well, what we're going to find is that uh, Saul is going to make a bad decision. Let's look at it, verse 8. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. And just as he finished offering the burnt offerings, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him. And Samuel asked him, what have you done? Now stop there for just a minute. Samuel told Saul, I want you to go to Gilgal, which you wait for seven days. We know that from chapter 10, verse 8. So he is there. Saul is waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting. Everything is falling apart. He's losing guys by the day. Uh, the enemy is growing in strength and moving toward him. Everything is, is not going well at all. He's definitely under pressure. Uh, people are looking for him as king. You know, it's awesome to be king when everything's going great, right? Not so great to be king when things are going bad, right? Everybody wants to be in charge when everything is awesome. It's not so great to be in charge when everything is not going awesome. And so now all of a sudden, it's for the first time things are not going well, and he is struggling with what to do. And he's supposed to wait for this 
a period of time before, and then wait for Samuel to show up, then Samuel's going to offer up an offering to God before they engage in battle. Now this was very important because they knew they didn't want to go into battle without God's favor or God's protection. And so he's waiting, 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 waiting. Samuel's not coming. Samuel's not coming. Finally goes, just give me that fire. I'm going to offer the sacrifice myself, and then we're going to move on. And in that moment, he sinned against God. Now, you may say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, actually, isn't that kind of a reasonable thing to do? I mean, isn't that something that you would do? Something that I might do? But here's what you need to understand, that God, in, in, in this monarchy that God had established, there was a king and then there was a prophet priest, right? One was a military leader, one was a spiritual leader. They each had their lane. They each had their area of authority under God, but they were never to usurp the other's authority. Samuel was the one to hear from God, to offer sacrifice to God, and to speak on God's behalf. That was not Saul's job. Saul's job was to lead on the battlefield. And so for Saul to do this was to usurp the power that did not belong to him. By the way, there's only one person that could serve as prophet, priest, and king, and that is Jesus. When Christ comes, he will be prophet, priest, and king, but not until then. And so Saul usurped authority that was not his. He was also setting a dangerous precedent for other kings to follow, which you would find Uzziah doing the same thing much later, at which God judged him. And so it was seen by God as a, as a direct affront to God's clear instruction. He clearly disobeyed the Lord in this moment. It was a blatant act. Now look at verse 11. It says, so Samuel asked him, what have you done? And Saul answered, well, when I, was, when I saw that the troops were deserting me and, and you didn't come until the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering a mishmash, I thought, well, the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. You hear what he's saying? Uh, I, 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 listen, 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 Samuel, you know, uh, I mean, my guys were leaving me. I didn't know what to do. You didn't show up on time. You know, this is really your fault. Uh, it's not my fault. And, and the enemy was coming and, and well, I just, I, I didn't want to do it, but I, somebody had to do it and I forced myself to do it. And do you all hear what's underneath all that? Uh, excuse, excuse, excuse. It was their, it's their fault. Uh, it's your fault, Samuel. It's, it's their fault. It's, it's everybody else's fault, but who? But his. His finger's pointing everywhere, but here. And he's, he's making excuses. It was interesting that phrase, what have you done? Samuel said, what have you done? What have you done? It's the same question that God asked Eve in the garden after they had eaten what, uh, what God had said was forbidden. What have you done? Same thing that God asked Cain after he had killed his brother in the field. What have you done? Same thing that Joshua asked Achan when he disobeyed God and took the things that should not be taken. What have you done? I, I think this question is a penetrating question because God always gives us an opportunity to confess what we've done. But Saul's not making any confessions. He's making excuses. The problem is that Saul saw the commands of God as something that were optional, that he could ignore or amend if the circumstances demanded it. 
Look at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. But now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. That's what I mean. It was a pivot point for him. This was his opportunity, either to say, I'm going to trust God no matter the pressure, no matter the circumstances, I am going to trust God and obey him, or I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And Saul certainly did the latter. And what is the thing that he did? Look at verse 13. You have not kept the command the Lord gave you. Verse 14 says again, you have not done what the Lord commanded. See, Saul's biggest failure was not uh, in his leadership. It wasn't in, on the battlefield. His biggest failure was his failure to obey God, to do what God had told him to do. You know, there are many times that we hear what the Lord says, but we don't do what God says. Many times we hear, God, I, God, I know your, your word says X, but these are more modern times. <laughs> and so that doesn't apply. God, I know your word says X, but these are unusual circumstances, and I'm sure you understand I'm going to do something different. I know your word says X, but God, I don't want to do X, and I'm going to do this. And, and we, whether they, we make excuses or not, to know what God says and to not do what God says is failure. I think about this uh, many, many years ago. Well, I was still in college. I can remember working at a bank. And I remember the day that we were all huddled around a small little TV in the break room to watch the Space Shuttle Challenger launch. And of course, there were, there were seven astronauts that were on that space shuttle. And they, it was exciting. One of them was a teacher, educator, first teacher to be in space. And I remember us watching as that rocket took off and it seemed like in just a moment, it exploded in midair. You remember that? Some of you remember distinctively. You can still conjure up in your mind what that looked like. Maybe where you were when you saw it. It shocked the nation. Of course, following that, there were many, many commissions and examinations and investigations into what had caused this rocket to explode, this terrible national tragedy. And what they identified is that there was a fault in the O-ring on the right rocket booster. In fact, they went on to say that this O-ring is a small little bitty part and that the engineers knew that this O-ring was being uh, squashed. That's, that's a very technical term. <laughs> you can tell I'm an engineer, right? Uh, it, was, it was eroding about two milliliter, millimeters. About two millimeters. And it was that small margin that was a difference between life and death. Two millimeters. That is what disobedience is like. 
See, the engineers knew that that was happening. They just didn't think it was a big deal. They were aware of it. They just didn't do anything about it. And the damage was more than anyone could imagine. Listen, to disobey God in some area of your life, to ignore it, to be aware of it, but to think, well, that's just a little thing. It doesn't really matter. He's a huge failure. This is what happened with Saul. Well, it's not that big a deal. I'm just going to just burn this sacrifice. What's the big deal? But it, yet it was a big deal. And that small infraction, that disobedience to God, ha had lasting implications for him and his own family. Listen, the ultimate failure is knowing what God wants and choosing to ignore it. That is the ultimate failure. To know what God wants and to choose to ignore it. Now you may say, well, Craig, why is disobedience so, so important? Why is it such a big deal to God? Well, let me give you a couple of things to write down. Number one is disobedience is an affront to God's authority in your life. When God says, I want you to do X, and you choose not to do X, basically what you're doing, you're setting yourself up as the authority above God. All of a sudden now, God, I know you say this, but I'm going to trump that, and I'm going to do what I want to do, and you are blatantly challenging the authority of God in your life. You are playing God now in your own life. It's an affront to God's authority. Number two, disobedience is a pattern that, that you can fall into where it happens over and over and over again. Same thing happens in, in uh, chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15. We see this whole thing played out all over again. It's different circumstances, but it's the same problem. Sam, uh, Saul is given a, a job to do. He fails to do it completely. Samuel shows up. He's like, what's going on? Why haven't you done it? Saul makes excuses. Well, I was afraid of this. I was afraid of that. Same thing all over again. Chapter 13, chapter 15 are carbon copies. And ultimately at this point, Samuel says, the kingdom has been ripped from your hands. You see, I mean, when you go down that road of disobedience in one area, oh, I got with it. I got away with it here. Now I can choose to do it here and here and here. And you begin to compartmentalize. You begin to desensitize yourself to the things that are right and wrong. And you end up in a very, very bad place. You, disobedience becomes a pattern of your life. That's why God says don't do it. And then thirdly, uh, disobedience prevents you from realizing your full redemptive potential because that's what happened with Saul. I mean, he said, you could have had your kingdom established forever. You see, this was his pivot point. This was his, his uh, defining moment. But because you chose to disobey God, you will no longer be king. And your son will not be king. And you will miss out on how God wanted to use you. Listen, if you allow disobedience in your life, it can bench you. It can keep you from being used by God to your ultimate potential. And I think it just grieves the heart of God. I, I, when I read chapter 13, I just feel sad. You know, I feel sad for Saul because he had no idea that this one, what he thought was a simple, small decision, had such lasting ramifications. I feel sad for Samuel because he loved Saul and wanted Saul to do well and was brokenhearted over it. I feel the same sadness when I talk to people 
that have made decisions in their life that they know were disobedience to God and they knew it at the time and they did it anyway and then they weep in my office because they had no idea the implications of that one decision. It breaks my heart. It breaks God's heart. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel said to obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, to obey God is better than being religious. To obey God is better than singing worship songs. To obey God is better than memorizing verses. To obey God is better than serving. To obey God is better than, than doing good to other people. To obey God is better. Why? Because without obedience, nothing else really matters. What God's looking for in you and in me is obedience. See, at the very core of being a disciple of Jesus is obeying Jesus. I know that sounds very fundamental, but I, I, I want to make sure I say that again. At the core of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is obeying Jesus. Discipleship and lordship are the same. You can't distinguish one from the other. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, it means that you're obeying Jesus in every part of your life to the best of your knowledge. And when you are not, you're confessing it quickly so that you can be obedient to him. To obey Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, is to say yes to him. And we're living in a day when a lot of people want to separate those two. They want Jesus as Savior. They do not want him as Lord. They want what Jesus offers. They just don't want, don't want what he commands. They want Jesus' blessing, but they don't want to obey him, especially in difficult seasons and choices of life. And this is why Jesus asked this penetrating question. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Wow. Why do you call me Lord? Lord, I just pray. No, hold on a minute. Why are you calling me Lord when you refuse to do what I have commanded you to do? Somehow we've got a way, of, we can separate what God commands from, from our relationship with him and we can worship and we can post things online and we can, you know, give our great verses, but, but yet here's this blaring dis area of disobedience and we act like it's all right. And God is like, why do you call me Lord, Lord? In fact, Jesus went on to say, after that question, he said, let me tell you what lordship really looks like. He said, if you take what I say and you do it, you actually obey it, it's like you're building your house on a rock and when the storms come, then it's gonna stand, right? But if you hear what I say and you choose you to ignore it, you choose to disobey it, it's like building your life on sand and when the storm comes, it will not stand. And what Saul is happening in his life is his house is falling down because he chose to disobey God in his own life. The ultimate failure is knowing what God wants and choosing to ignore it. Samuel told Saul that day, he said, the Lord has found a man after his own heart. This man after his own heart, it's a uh, this is a reference to David, who we will meet next week, all right? Next week, we're going to get to David. But I think it is also a foreshadowing of Jesus, who is the ultimate man after the Father's heart, right? 
in many ways, Jesus is the opposite of Saul. Saul elevated himself. Jesus humbled himself. Saul uh, wavered. Jesus was resolute. Saul blamed others. Jesus never did. Saul um, was afraid. Jesus went unafraid to the cross for you and for me. It's only through Jesus' obedience that we can be right with God. Jesus offered the ultimate sacrifice. And that was a sacrifice of his own life for you and for me. Listen, the ultimate failure in life is not how you did in your job. That doesn't define you. It's not whether you made the team or not. That doesn't define you. It's not about your grades or if you got into that graduate school or not. That's not what defines you. But the ultimate failure is to know what God says to do and choose to ignore it. That will. But here's the good news. Even when we come to that point where we have failed, we have known what God has said and we have failed to do it and we are feeling the ramifications of it, the good news is because of Jesus, we can find forgiveness. We can find a clean slate. We can find grace. That that failure, as bad as it is, does not have to be a lasting failure because you can start over because of what Christ has done. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a minute. You may be here today and you say, Craig, you know, I, I, I can tell that there have been times in my life that I've failed God. I failed the Lord. And I realize that I've sinned against God. And maybe I'm a lot like Saul. I've made lots of mistakes. I've made a lot of excuses. But I realize now what I need is forgiveness. I need to start over. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came for you to start over to find and experience forgiveness. And right where you are, you can choose to turn to him. Maybe right now you realize, I need Christ in my life. I need forgiveness. I need to start over. Then I want to pray a simple prayer of faith with you. The Bible says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. Repent and believe is what Jesus said. And maybe it's time for you to turn Turn to Jesus. Ask him to clean you on the inside. Ask him to help you start over again. To move from failure to fellowship with him. So if you'd like for me to walk you through that simple prayer right now, you feel the spirit of God tugging at your heart. Hey, I need Christ in my life. Then just with your heads bowed, nobody looking around, just lift up your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. You lift up your hand. I'm not going to call you out, but I will see that hand. Thank you, brother. And, And I will lead you in a prayer right where you're seated. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. I need Christ. All right? Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Pastor, pray for me. I need Christ in my life. Pray for me. I need Jesus. All right. Anybody else? Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. With your, put your hands down. Just, just right where you are. Let's just pray together. Just pray with me. Dear Lord, 
I know I have sinned against you. And I have failed in so many ways. But Jesus, I believe you died on a cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. And so I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Please wash me clean on the inside. My hope is in you. And Lord, I want to follow you all the days of my life. Father, I thank you so much for your word today. And Lord, just for all of us in this room, we just want to put our yes on the table. Lord, we don't want to be disobedient. We don't want to know what you say and then ignore it. Lord, we want to hear your words and run to obey it. To respond with yes, Lord, every time you speak to us. Lord, we want to be men and women after your heart that are aligned with your heart that want what you want and will do it quickly. That you can trust us, God, with your word and with your work because our hearts are aligned with yours. Lord, thank you for Jesus who covers our sin, who covers our failures, who makes us right with you again. Our ultimate sacrifice and we worship him today. We pray this in Jesus' name.